0: If you can finish this sentence. December 7, 1941, a date which shall live in infamy. So this past week, we just won't say we celebrated. We we observed Pearl Harbor Remembrance Day. A day when, of course, we remember the the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, which took uh, so many American lives. This attack drew the United States into a war that it had long tried to avoid. War had already been raging in Europe for years as nation after nation fell to the advance of Hitler and the Axis powers. Can you guess why the U.S. was so reluctant to enter into World War II? I'll give you a hint. It, was, it also started with World War. World War I was fresh in the minds of Americans, and, and they were very reluctant to get involved in another European war that was going to take American casualties. So they were providing some material help to, to uh, Britain and others, but they were reluctant to enter into the fighting. But with Pearl Harbor, America was realized that war could no longer be avoided. But we, we were reluctant to enter into the war because we wanted peace. But sometimes peace gets ripped away from us by the actions of others. And this this is a reality that Scripture faces head on. And it's one of the things that I love about the Bible is that the Bible doesn't ask us to stick our heads in the sand or ask us to pretend that reality is something different than it is, but the Bible has this way of facing head on the harsh realities of life. That there we, we live in a world that, that can take our peace away in a moment. It can break in upon us. But what the what the Bible does for us, if we're if we're willing to study it, is if it is it gives us a bigger framework for understanding peace. And so I want to give you a biblical definition for understanding peace that's going to seem pretty broad and abstract, but we're going to try to I think it has to be broad and abstract to, to address all the different levels that peace operates at, right? Because we could you can have peace in between nations with war. We can talk about peace as a sense of inner harmony or we say inner peace. But the Bible teaches that peace is much more than the absence of conflict. Peace is much more than a sense of inner harmony. The Bible teaches that peace is something that God has established is establishing, and will establish for his people. So here's a, here's a biblical definition of peace for you. Biblical peace describes a state of existing in submission to God's sovereign rule. So wherever people are submitted to the rule of God, there we find peace. So peace at a personal level is when we have that when we are personally submitted to the sovereign rule of God. We would have peace. War would be non-existent, right, if all people were submitted to the sovereign rule of God in their lives. So so conflict exists where people are not submitted to the rule of God. Now, Scripture says that one day Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to vanquish all of his enemies by the word of his mouth. So there's coming a day in which he's going to establish peace over all. But in the meantime, we have to figure out how to live in the already and not yet When when... The world around us is not submitted to the rule of God in their lives. So let's start with God's promise. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, God foretold through the prophet Isaiah that one day a child would be born who would rule over his people and that a defining feature of his rule would be everlasting peace. He says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So he says that there's going to be a child born. And he's going to inherit authority over the entire earth, and what is going to characterize his government is going to be justice, righteousness, and peace, and the whole world's going to be submitted to his authority. So, in Luke chapter two, verses eight through fourteen, we see the the fulfillment of this promise, this arrival of the son. I think uh, we read this earlier during worship. In the same region. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And so the arrival of Jesus, the angel says, is a sign to you that God is fulfilling his promise to bring peace on earth with those with whom he's pleased. And yet we have this already-not-yet tension because peace didn't arrive on all over the earth with the birth of Christ, right? We sing uh, the carol, silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. But things weren't calm very long after the birth of Christ. In, in a couple of years, the Bethlehem was filled with the screams of children being slaughtered. In Herod's search for this one that's been born king of the Jews. So, so even peace in Christ's own life uh, was not a reality as a child and especially not as an adult as he's tried, unjustly convicted, and unjustly executed as a criminal, right? So Jesus knows as well as any of us what it is to live in the middle of the already and the not yet as God's promises are being fulfilled in our midst. So He can, he can sympathize with us, no matter what we're struggling with. So we live in a world full of hostility. That's reality. But through Jesus Christ, God has established a way that we can have peace now while we're waiting for the peace to come. And that's really what we want to focus on tonight. So the big idea from our passage is going to be Jesus has provided the means for the people of God to experience peace in the midst of troubled times, and he expects us to take possession of that Peace by faith. So we're going to turn to John chapter 14, verse 27. If you're using your Pew Bible, the Bible in the Pew, the page number will be 1068, page 1068. So as we look at this passage this evening, I want you to see that the cure for anxiety is a single minded devotion to Jesus Christ and a complete trust in his sovereign care for your life. And I also want you to see that. Overcoming anxiety requires an act of faith. It's not simply something that's done for us. It is something that we have to appropriate by faith. So, John fourteen twenty seven, short verse. We're going to break it into three parts. He's Jesus. This is Jesus speaking to a, his disciples during the the last uh, supper, as he's preparing to ascend to heaven, and he's going to send back the promise of the Spirit. He says, "Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you." Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. So the first thing we want to see in the first line of that verse is that the peace of Christ is a gift for his disciples. The peace of Christ is a gift for those who follow him. Back in Luke chapter 2, verse 14, the angel's declaration was glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And who, who are those with whom God is pleased? It's those who, uh, John 14, 20, one says it's those who have obeyed the Son, those who have turned to Christ in faith. The church of Jesus Christ, meaning the people, not the building, but the people of God, is the only place to find true, deep, and lasting peace because only the church has a legitimate basis for peace in the cross of Christ. The Bible teaches that everyone who has not turned to Christ has a problem. It says that the the wrath of God abides on them. In John chapter 3, beginning in verse 16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So we, all of us have sinned and all of us have the wrath of God abiding over us outside of Christ. Christ's blood paid the penalty for my sins and removed God's wrath from me. This So this kind of peace, and uh, in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. This kind of faith that he's talking about is not a feeling. It is not a sense of inner harmony. It is a fact. It is something that God has established for our sakes. So Christ... Paid the penalty, the, the peace that Jesus gives is exclusively for those who follow him in faith. It's for those with whom God is pleased, and God is pleased with those who obey, who honor his son Jesus Christ. John fourteen twenty one says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father. So if you don't have peace today, I would encourage you to examine your heart, whether you've genuinely committed your life to Jesus whether you've, you've entered into that fact, that reality that God, that you're forgiven, that you've got peace with God through Christ's work. Number two, back to John 14:27, the peace of Christ is a unique gift. Jesus says that the peace that he gives to his disciples is not peace as the world gives. The peace that the world offers is an empty promise. The world has, a, has an upside-downness to it. I think this is captured poignantly in Tracy Chapman's song, Why. She says, why do the babies starve when there's enough food to feed the world? Why, when there's so many of us, are there people still alone? Why are the missiles called peacekeepers when they're aimed to kill? Why is a woman still not safe when she's in her home? And the chorus line says, Love is hate, war is peace, no is yes, and we're all free. Uh, and so she's, she's brilliantly expressing the, the irony of, of a broken, sinful human society that cannot live up to its promises. So the world's promises are empty because they're based on externals, m- material resources. Paul Hebert was a cultural anthropologist, and he talked about the myth of the limited good, that there was in, in a naturalistic world where we believe we, we believe we live in a closed system. I mean, we don't believe this, but the world believes this. They believe that we live in a closed system, that there's a finite amount of good in the world, and we each have to scrabble and claw to get our piece of the pie. Right? That's that's what a naturalistic worldview teaches. If you're I, I'm in sales and I know even salespeople think that way. They think there's a finite amount of sales to get here, so I have to scrabble to get as, as much as I can. Do you recall a story in the Bible where Jesus where there was a finite amount of resources available? And Jesus responded to this by you remember the story of fishes and loaves? What did Jesus do? He multiplied. Jesus didn't believe in the myth of a limited good. So we don't live, we don't believe, Christians don't believe that we live in a closed universe. We believe that God is able to multiply fishes and loaves. And so we don't have to live under the tyranny of a limited good. We can believe that God, we don't have to scrabble for material resources. We don't have to run the rat race and, and, and be cutthroat. We can be generous and giving to others because we believe that God can bring it back to us. But the world trusts in material resources, and they buy this myth of the limited good. And then secondly, peace in the world is based on military might. We call missiles peacekeepers. And so we source our peace in military power. Third, mood medications. We we base our source on the ability to, to influence our moods through medication. 36 million Americans are in anti-anxiety drugs. 41 million Americans are on antidepressants. Both of those numbers are more than separately are more than 10% of the American population. So one in 1 in 10 Americans are on anti-anxiety drugs, one in 10 on antidepressants. And then secondly, the peace of the world is based on fragile commitments. I did some research on Arab Israeli peace attempts. There've been in the past 40 years there's been over 35 peace proposals for Arab-Israeli relations that have all failed. And then third, uh, the peace of the world is based on self-interest, and therefore it's self-defeating. Hyper-individualism breaks down societies. Sociologists are telling us that American society is breaking down in large part because of the increased fragmentation of agendas. You get, when every person has his or her own agenda, it's almost impossible to get anything accomplished. And so you see a breakdown of political systems because you've got so many lobbyists in Washington uh, vying for their own agenda. So it leads to a breakdown in political systems, leads to increased tensions in society. Think of the, even the Black Lives Matter versus Blue Lives Matter controversy where, where everyone has their own agenda that they're committed to and there's very little real dialogue. There's very little real listening and relating across, across the aisle. So anyway, by contrast, the peace that Jesus offers comes through the person of the Holy Spirit. The peace that Christ, uh, Christ offers is personal. He says in uh, John 14, he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, meaning another helper like me. I've been with you, and now I'm going to ask the Father, and he's going to give you another helper so that he may be with you forever forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. These things I've spoken to you while abiding with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. And so so the, the promise of peace that Jesus gives is sealed by the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is given to everyone who has peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Back to Romans chapter 8, all who are being led by the Spirit of God. These are children of God. Also, the Spirit is the sign of Jesus' promise to return. In John 14, Jesus says, back in the earlier part of the chapter, verses 1 through 3, He says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And then in Ephesians 1, Paul says that in him, in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So when he says that the Spirit is given as a pledge, he means just like a, a ring or a down... And like when, you give, when you're getting married, I, I gave my wife an engagement ring, and that was my, my promise to her that I was going to finish what I started, that I was going to make her my wife. When you want to buy a car, you put down a down payment, And that serves as a promise that I'm going to finish what I started. I'm going to finish paying this up. And so he says that the Holy Spirit has been given to believers as a promise that God is going to finish what he started, that he will come back for us. And so having the Holy Spirit inside of us gives us a confident expectation that God is going to finish what he started. And because of that, we can have peace no matter no matter what we encounter, no matter what trials come our way. Thirdly, the Spirit abides in believers forever. Still in John chapter 14, verse 16, he says, I will ask the Father, he'll give you another helper that he may be with you forever. You can have peace because you have an abiding peace giver living inside of you. The Holy Spirit provides supernatural enablement and empowerment to have peace in a, in a world that is hostile. The Spirit unites believers of all ethnicities and socioeconomic classes into one body, the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says, For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Jesus intends for his church to display the peace, display peace and unity across color lines, across socioeconomic distinctions, class distinctions. The church testifies to the kingdom of God, not by denying that differences exist, but by denying that those differences matter, by insisting that those differences are not going to keep us from loving one another. Number three, the peace that Jesus gives requires a faith response. So the last line of John 14, Jesus says, Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. So he's saying that we, through the promise of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us, he has made peace a reality for us. We can really experience peace even when circumstances around us are not peaceful. But he says that we have to appropriate that by faith. And so he, he gives these commands. Do not let your heart be troubled is an imperative, nor let it be fearful. It's another imperative. Mark four thirty six forty one 41 illustrates this well for us. It says that leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? So four out of these twelve original disciples, what? do you remember what their occupations were before they were disciples? Fishermen. These are guys that were used to being on the water, right? These were not guys that panicked whenever there was a little gust of wind. They were, they were professional fishermen. They were used to being on the water every day fishing. And so when a storm comes up, these are guys that know when it's time to panic. Right? Right? <laughs> They, they know when it's time to get scared. And their question when they wake Jesus up, their question is, don't you care? And I think that's, that's the, the, the accusation that we send to God when the winds, the storms of life come on us. We, in our own reason, in our own thinking, we think we know when it's time to panic. We know when something needs to happen now, God. And we go to God and say, God, don't you care that we're perishing? But Jesus' response is, why are you afraid? There's a, there's a soft rebuke in his, in his response that, that his presence with the disciples in the boat should have been enough to not be afraid. Do you have still so little faith? You, if I'm with you in the boat, you can believe it's not going down. And that's God's promise to us. So peace requires a faith response, and I'm calling this a faith response of radical trust. A decision of the heart, a commitment of the will to trust Jesus, even when we think it's time to panic. We think it's time to, to, to start bailing water and bailing out. So secondly, I'm going to give you four faith responses. This is the second faith response, a faith response of humility. First Peter five, six and seven says, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. In this verse, Peter connects our experience of peace with our ability to humble ourselves before God. So I think this is about our ability to be content with what God is doing in the present circumstance Being content means humbling ourselves under the sovereignty of God. We're to trust him to provide for our needs. He may not provide for all of our wants. He expects us to be content and grateful for the provision that he provides. And I think, honestly, I think that this is the majority of our anxieties in life center around this area of needs and wants. We fear that God is not going to provide for our needs or we're discontent that God's not providing for our wants. I think the majority of our anxieties in life can, can revolve around these. So can we, if we can humble ourselves and believe that whatever this provision that God has brought to me, this is what he's brought to me. And I need to be grateful because I'm not entitled to it, am I? It's all of his grace. And so I've got to humble myself and admit that what he's given me is it must be what I need. And I'm going to do with it what I can do. And thirdly, a faith response of Prayer. Philippians 4, chapter 4 through 7, says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be na- made known to God. And the peace of God, listen to this, the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. A peace that is... Supernatural, a peace that doesn't make sense in light of the current circumstances. Everything is falling apart, and yet I've got peace. That's the kind of peace he wants us to have. And then secondly, a faith response of meditation and obedience. This is the next two verses in the Philippians passage, verses 8 and 9. He says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, If there's any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And so Paul connects peace to not only to to prayer and thanksgiving, but also in what we let our minds dwell on. If we obsess about anxiety-producing things, realities then it's going to produce anxiety in our hearts. But if we let our minds dwell and meditate on the truth of God, on the the promises of God, the hope that we have in him and what he's calling us to and what he's shaping us for. By the way, this is a great way to deal with a lot of those discontents that we have about God not providing for our wants is, or because we're meditating on those wants. Was James say, you, you have not because you ask not and you don't receive when you ask because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend it on your own pleasures. So we've got to have a heart that's oriented toward God, a heart that wants what he wants, and a heart that's willing to be content with what he provides. We've got to get over ourselves. We've got to stop thinking that this life is all about us. God is calling us to so much bigger, something so much bigger. And so he connects meditation, what we meditate on, but he also mentions obedience, the things that you've seen exemplified, what you've learned, what you've received, what you've heard, and what you've seen practiced in spiritual leaders imitate these things, walk in obedience to those things, and you'll have the peace of God in your life. So the practice of obedience along with meditating on the truth of God will bring peace in our lives. So I I got saved when I was 22 I've got so much less drama in my life than I had before I got saved, mainly because I'm obeying more of what God says than before I got saved. When I was not saved and I was doing whatever I wanted to do, I had bad relationships with everybody. I had drama in my life all the time. So I can, I can testify to this. If we, if we meditate on the truth of God and we walk in obedience to what he's revealed, we will experience peace. So back to our definition Biblical peace describes a state of existing in submission to God's rule. So just a couple of of points to ponder. The cure for racial prejudice is for people of every ethnic group to unite in submission to the one King, Jesus Christ. The cure for anxiety in your heart is a single-minded devotion to Jesus Christ and a complete trust in his sovereign care for you. And so the... when we as we come together god intends for us to be a testimony to, to testify to the kingdom of god that even though there's strife and fighting and racial prejudice and that that inside the church those things don't exist that we don't we don't care uh, the apostle paul or yeah the apostle paul says back in 1st corinthians 12 when he said whether greek or jew or whether slave or free, in the church it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, doesn't matter where you're from. doesn't matter how much money you've got. This is a place where you'll be embraced and treated with dignity and as, as an equal. So we're waiting for a day when Jesus is going to bring, he's going to level all of his enemies, and we're going to experience that reality all over the earth. But in the meantime, it's the church's job to testify to that kingdom now. And the same is true in our, in our personal lives, in our uh, anxiety. What kind of testimony would it be if when, when you're at work and all of your coworkers are bad-mouthing the boss or gossiping, if there's layoffs going on, people are f- afraid for their jobs, what would it look like for you to have peace in that situation, for you to not be engaging in, in the gossip with them, for you to not be panicked, when things are, things are uncertain, those are all ways that we, that we are, are part of our testimony. So again, overcoming anxiety requires an act of faith. So I, I encourage you to think through these to re- receive God's peace that he offers. If you are a genuine follower of Christ, he has given you his spirit. He's given you everything that you need to have peace in the midst of troubled times. And so maybe you need to make a commitment to the sovereignty of God. Maybe there's some discontent in your life. Maybe there's some worry in your life. And you just need a big vision of God that he can meet your need and that he's got you right where he wants you. Maybe you need to receive the peace of God through prayer and meditation. And that's not a a one-and-done thing, right? That's a You need to get up in the morning and, and, and pray that you'll be able to trust God's sovereignty. But does Life doesn't just happen once in the morning. Life happens all day long, right? So we've got to be ready to to pray and to meditate throughout the day. As as temptations come, opportunities come to be discontent, to worry, ready to, to respond to those things with prayer.